One for two in the game. Subban wides and shoots. He scores! P.K. Subban on the power play in the second overtime. The Montreal Canadiens take game one. Last night I was thinking about how annoying the NFL's decision to push the draft back two weeks is. Yeah. And I was thinking about other things that would be equal annoying if it was decided that they'd be pushed back two weeks. Like if Christmas (laughs) was moved to like January 8th. Like, that would get really annoying. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how much I noticed it because uh, maybe because the hockey's been so good. But I do feel like somehow subconsciously I'm more hyped up for it than I usually am. So maybe maybe that's the result of it. And I guess that's probably what they want. I don't know. Yeah. Or no, they couldn't move the Rockettes, right? That was the thing. Yeah, that's uh, potentially a rumor that the Rockettes own that building. and They were not moving. You know, there's only, what, 30 other probably – Potentially just find theaters in New York City they probably could have had it in. <laughs> right. Shockingly, Jerry Jones has said that he'd like to see the draft move around and has volunteered Dallas as a potential location oh, of course. for uh, for a future draft. I, I don't hate that idea, though. No. Having you, it move around. It'd be cool if the draft was at Chase. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> do you think if they do start moving the draft that Buffalo will be high on the. Uh, How big is Radio list? City? Probably not that much bigger than, than Shays, but yeah, why not? Yeah, bring it here. Sure. Yeah, NFL draft, Shays, Buffalo, 2017. <laughs> uh, it's uh, season four, episode 14 of the Sportscasters, May 7, 2014. I actually have a really nice guest list for you today. Robert Klemko is the last of the full-time staffers at Monday, the Monday Morning QB website that hasn't been on the podcast. We're going to remedy that today. He's going to join us uh, after three things to talk about the NFL draft, which is finally going to take place in a couple days. We'll talk about that in three things as well. Uh, Jonah Carey, a uh, good friend, is going to make his eighth appearance on the podcast. Talk about his book, Up, Up, and Away. He's been all over doing that, including the Seth Meyers show. He even gave Seth Meyers a uh, Montreal Expos yarmulke. Oh, okay. And I guess Seth Meyers showed it off the next day. At a game? No, just like on his show, he just like oh okay, gotcha. Took it out. Like I that. thought you meant he gave it to him on the show. He did, and then he brought and it then out again. The next day, Seth Meyers is so happy about it that he <laughs> brought it out. So that's probably cool if you're Jonah Carey. Sure. And uh, also, uh, Sean McIndoe, maybe better known as Down Goes, Goes Brown. Brown, is going to be on to talk NHL playoffs. He's hysterical. Yeah. So. You know what? And that's funny. He is really funny. And now this is the second time. We've already recorded the interview. The interview is not funny. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to, like, do a funny interview, I guess. <laughs> like, like I, I, I mean, so you got any good jokes about Alexander Dagg? Like, I don't know what to, <laughs> what to ask him. Like, we just started talking about hockey. It didn't necessarily turn out funny. Yeah. And I just wonder if this is like a... Like, am I screwing up the interviews with him? And I, I, I don't know. I'm sure I've heard him other places, but I, I don't know him well enough other than in print. Maybe he's just funnier as a writer. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't know. We just started talking about hockey for 20 minutes or whatever. But, uh, yeah, so we have a great uh, guest list. We're going to do a real short book club update. And we're going to try out a new segment that re- revolves around Don and I having opinions on things that people disagree with. Yeah, kind of going so, against the grain. Yeah, we'll explain that later. And uh, we'll end with one last thing. But uh, let's get this started and do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. I think I've noticed a little bit that when you have a first round as good as the NHL and the NBA did, there's a little bit of a regression back to the mean, it feels like, the last week or so. Yeah, I would say that too. And I, I don't even know if it's uh, – I don't even know if it's – I mean, in basketball's case, it seems like – They're very early into their round. Well, I mean, right. No one has played more than one game in the second round yet. Every series is one nothing. So they're still very early in their in their second round, and they but. do have what seating wise appears to be well. No, I guess not really. I was going to say a little bit of mismatches, but I guess because I see a lot of one fives, but at worst those are going to be one fours the way the brackets work. So never mind. It's just early. And, and in the NHL, I was saying the same thing. I kind of somehow haven't caught hockey a lot. I've been busy, but uh, maybe it's just that the first round is so exciting that somehow, even if the play lives up to it it's just maybe there's just not as much of it and or... i mean you're going from four games every night to two so when there's four games every night there's just more of a chance you're going to watch right, right right there's just that many more games for you to catch some of well essentially go went from like 7 p.m to about two in the morning every right night, and now whatever, however late the... you know now there's night there's a night this week where there's one game you know well that's ridiculous too if we talk about i mean we will but the rangers schedule is Which it, is, is embarrassing. To Billy the Joel's fault, though. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not really sure what the league, the Rangers, and we can just we can go to that right now. The Rangers got totally screwed yeah. by the scheduling. They played a schedule that would never even happen in the regular season. Right. It would now. be against the CBA. I think. Is right? it really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've heard of four and seven nights. That's kind of a regular occurrence in the NHL. I mean, you don't want that three times a month, but four and seven is something that happens, but they played five games in seven nights. And, uh, not surprisingly, I mean, I, I haven't, like I said, seen too much of that series, but they're down. Yeah. Right now, and, so. uh, the, I guess it comes down to Billy Joel, <laughs> who, uh, is a resident of Madison square garden now. Oh, okay. He's just doing just, like the, uh, Vegas thing, but in MSG. Yeah. He plays one show a month there and it, it's scheduled indefinitely, I guess, until people don't want to come see them anymore. Wow, I know he's a name, but he can do that, huh? He is Mr. New York. I mean, you know, he's right. from Long Island. He lives on Long Island. I mean, he's a hero there. So, yeah, I guess. I mean, I think they've sold 12 out already. You know, I think they've sold a whole year's worth of them. If Pearl Jam decided Buffalo was their home away from home and they came every month, I guess I would go, right? Oh, hell yeah. Once a month, no yeah. no drive, oh, no, no God, hotel yeah. rooms. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I guess they could do that for a year, and it'd still probably be less expensive than some of the other years we've done because of the, the lack of travel. I bet if they did three a month here, it would take me a long time to miss one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might be right. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not 
Yeah, if I was... And like you said, he is Mr. New York. That'd be like Bruce doing that in, in New Jersey, Jersey or yeah. whatever. Yeah, so... And I guess that had a big a big play in it. And uh, this... Actually, this month's show is Friday, I think. And it's his birthday, and he's donating all the proceeds uh. to the uh, North Shore Animal League, which is the charity that Howard and Beth Stern are intimately involved in. Oh, okay. They're trying to build a uh, cageless environment for the pe- for the animals in the particular at the North Shore Animal League, so they would just be able to like I guess live on a floor that had no cages gotcha. or whatever. So. So yeah, so that's uh way off topic. <laughs> the Rangers in Pittsburgh, that series is uh 2-1 in Pittsburgh's favor. Crosby finally gets through with a goal, but he's been pretty good anyway. Like yeah. he's got a lot of points, and just no goals. We would have left Marc Andre Fleury for dead, I think, a week or two ago, and he's picked himself off the mat and been great. Yeah, the Rangers for a team that like we said has every excuse in the book to be tired, uh they've probably been the better team. And Fleury's kind of hung in there and had two straight shutouts, right? Yeah, two straight shutouts and you know, the Penguins the more confidence that Mark Andre Fleury gets, the scarier of a team the Penguins sure. become. Sure. Yeah. You know, so they're a real interesting team right now. I went 8 for 8 in my first round picks and but I hate my second round picks, I think. I think if I could do it over again and make my second round picks right now, I would definitely pick the Kings and the Blackhawks to play each other in the Western Conference Finals, and I would pick the Penguins and the Bruins to play each other in the Eastern Conference Finals. I got crushed in the in the West. I went one and three, but I went four and zero oh in the East. I thought on the podcast you picked Philly, actually, but I guess not. Uh, but yeah, I lost Colorado. I mean, that was a seven game series. I lost San Jose. That should have never happened. And Dallas played better than I. Th- Thought. I think I was picking maybe with my heart there and going going with Lindy, but uh, yeah, I mean I threw an upset out there and got lucky. Yeah, the you w- know what I mean. Like I, the West I think is suffering from that right now. Um, I talked about the advanced stats a little bit and how Anaheim is a good team. They're a cup winning team. They have a good core, but they're not a great puck possession team. And I think they're showing that now. The Kings are up two zero in that series. Minnesota, I don't know how they won a game the way they did and they're down two to one, but I don't, I'd be surprised if they won another game in that series. Yeah. And then in the NBA, you know, it's nice that the Donald Sterling stuff has calmed down a little bit. The Clippers got game one against Oklahoma city. It'd be interesting to see what happens to teams like Oklahoma city and Indiana who really struggled in round one and had to play seven round games. And same with the Spurs. Uh, if they, what they're going to be in round two. So, I think they might have had five game sevens in the first round of the NBA, so almost everyone in the second round played seven games anyway. So yeah, somehow weirdly through the regular this is going to auto play on me. Sorry. Somehow strangely through the regular season, the Heat got swept by the Nets, and then they went out and beat them game one by twenty one points. Right. I, I mean, they have to be a team thinking like, let's be the. There hasn't been a 16-0 team, right? I'm going to say it right now. The Heat are going to win the NBA Finals. Well, right. But I, 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 I'm not – they're just – obviously, they're just going to win it, right? I mean – It sure seems that way. And, uh, yeah, can they can they sweep the whole thing? Maybe. Has that ever happened? I'm sure it hasn't. I thought the Lakers were really close. Maybe one of the Bulls teams, something like that. But and Remember, they haven't even been playing uh, 
seven games in the first round for that long. Oh, that's right. That's so right. probably it hasn't happened with 16, 16 games, wins. Right. Uh, maybe someone did it with the five, best of five to start, but who knows? Yeah, they don't, they don't look like they're going to lose. All right, second thing this week. Finally, uh, like we said off the top, the NFL draft is on Thursday or tomorrow or whenever you're hearing this. We're recording on Wednesday night, which is rare for us. We usually do it a bit earlier than this, but circumstances this week we're recording and uh well it's finally here and it's a very sexy and interesting draft uh a kid from ub could be the first overall pick yeah that'd be amazing will we say that every year you think or do you think last year we knew it was not going to be we knew it wasn't yeah i think we i think we even said that we knew it's a bunch of linemen right and it's really weird yeah i mean going in most mock drafts last year had a lineman from the mac as the projected first overall pick and that's what happened right and this year it sounds like it's another good offensive lineman draft but that they might they're sprinkled in with a bunch of quarterbacks sure and and maybe eight wide receivers in the first round and and they'll sometimes do the thing where someone said that if ej Manuel were in this year's draft class he'd be like the eighth quarterback taken and i think they would say something similar about fisher and maybe not eighth but i think he'd be fourth or fifth so just a much better draft this year maybe i was saying before about how maybe i haven't noticed the delay but i have been more hyped the bills are everywhere in these rumors and that's never like buffalo to be in rumors for that uh trading up i heard a theory about it i don't know if you heard the same theory so the bills are obviously going to get a new owner right right so if you're the current coach and the current gm you might be assuming that your days in Buffalo are numbered because when the new owner comes in, he's going to want to hire his own people. So they're going to play to win. So now. you're going to go all in because this might be your last draft. Yeah, and I'm I'm okay, I'm okay with that a little bit, I guess. I don't I don't know. It's a weird thing because every general manager is kind of playing for their job, but that's really the wrong way to run a franchise. But it, I mean, I get it. You want to you want to be employed, but a lot of the rumors have them moving up to take. An offensive lineman, Greg Robinson, and that just doesn't interest me at all. Yeah, if they're going to move up, you want a sexy guy like Watkins. Watkins, right, or, or Evans, Evans, or yeah. Ebron, I guess, to some extent, or what, whatever. I mean, I guess that's uh, one thing I was going to ask. I've heard a lot on the radios these past couple weeks, but what's your best and worst-case scenario for the Saints? Well, my best-case scenario would be uh, Marcus Lee from USC, just because I – He's the only wide receiver that, like, obviously the best wide receiver that they can get would be the best case scenario for the Saints. Saints aren't getting Evans. Right. You know what I mean? They're not getting Watkins at 27. So, but maybe they get Lee at 27. Maybe. So that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is they pick like a nose tackle like Knicks from Notre Dame yeah, just because they have a horrible track record of picking nose tackles in the draft. So I guess that would be my worst case. There was one thing I was thinking about the Saints. If they have Breeze economics uh, with the salary cap, why not do the same thing with the draft? As far as? Right. Like if you're willing to basically just say – Forget the salary cap three years from now because Breeze isn't going to be here. Why not just say forget the draft three years from now? Why not just <laughs> go all in this year? Why not I, I, do everything you can to get Watkins or Evans? I wondered if, if there's them? rules against that. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never heard them someone say that. But like a general manager, 
I mean, the curious. Saints have already traded their whole draft for one guy for one once. running back, yeah. I mean, the so, second running back in the draft. Not that he didn't turn out to be really good, but... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If you're going to do that with the cap, maybe why not do that for the draft? I don't know. Maybe it's not a great idea, but I wouldn't But if you're a general manager, it's it. exactly what you were kind of suggesting that uh, Doug Whaley do. Like, you might not be there. You better win now to look good. Now, Mickey Loomis probably has a lot more reason to feel like he has job security. Right. You know, I think the thing with Whaley is that there might be a perception in the room that this is their last chance at drafting for this team. That next year might be the last chance they have to win here. So let's get the best team on the field that we can next year and see what kind of run we can make. Right. Yeah, my best case scenario for the Bills is, I mean, honestly... Maybe, maybe I'll keep this for my unpopular opinion, but my best case scenario for the Bills is that quarterbacks fly off the board. Like people are talking about how they're expected to drop, and hopefully that's just smoke screens and quarterbacks fly off the board and linemen fly off the board. I want St. Louis to take uh, the big Robinson. Rob, right. Yeah. I want those guys to be off the board. I want the Bills to have to pick between Sammy Watkins and Mike Evans and Ebron. I don't. I don't want them to have the best of the three linemen. It's just such a boring thing. If you're going to – the best quarterbacks in the league don't always play in front of the best lines. Like I know Breeze and Brady historically have really good lines, but a lot of it is just that they're good quarterbacks. I say that's Ruff. absolutely the case for Breeze. The Saints have let every free agent lineman walk away. Right. You can find a guy. And people were – someone on the radio made a good point too. If you're uh, – Doug Marone, you're an offensive lineman coach. Have a little bit of pride in your ability to just take a third round guy and make him fit. You know, like coach him up. Yeah, I think if you're the Bills, you really need to get a, either one of those two receivers or the tight end. Yeah, and that's my worst case scenario, I guess, is that you know they're staring at nothing but offensive linemen come their pick. All the skill guys are gone. Uh, the two defensive players are gone. They're they're, they're a team. They're a team that, like I said, I'll hold the rest of my opinion about the Bills for my unpopular opinion segment. All right. my uh, We'll talk more about the draft uh, with Robert Klemko from the Monday Morning Quarterback in a couple minutes. Uh, last thing. So it seems like every year nobody wants to do hard knocks. So much, <laughs> so, much so that the league put in a rule, basically, that set up a criteria where you could be forced to – be a part of Hard Knocks. Right, based on if you've like been there before and, and if you've made the playoffs. I think right? you're exempt if you have a new coach and okay. if you made the playoffs in the last two years or something. Is Whatever. If you did make it or if you didn't make it? You did. Oh, it's if you did make it. Okay. Okay, so two of the teams that would have been eligible to be forced were the Giants and the Steelers, who have kind of like huge national followings, right? They were the two teams assumed the league would most want to force. Well, there's a report today in the New York Post uh, from a guy named Bart Hubbich that an NFL source says the Giants won't be in hard knocks this year because a handful of clubs have volunteered, and the league is deciding between wow. the volunteer clubs on who it will be. Are there any names out there? There's no names really rumored, but he did go on to say that doesn't mean the Steelers or the Giants couldn't have been one of the teams to volunteer. Just The report is just that it doesn't seem like the league is going to have to force, force anybody. So cool, interesting. Suddenly, teams want to be on Hard Knocks. I know it's a show I, I want to watch, but I, I don't. Why. But I don't have HBO. But it's a show I should get to anyway. But like, 
obviously having the Bills on there would be awesome, and it would get me to the to watching it. Yeah, the teams that uh, could be forced are the Bears, Bills, Cardinals, Giants, Jaguars, Raiders, Rams, and Steelers. So that's another thing. Moving up in the draft to draft uh, Sammy Watkins or an exciting player like that, people are going to want to see the Bills then. I've always said, like, the Saints would be my number one choice, obviously, just because it would be cool for my team, but the Bills would easily be my number two. It would be so fun for Hard Knocks to be, like, here. Yeah, here, right, yeah. yeah. So. All right, my last thing, short and sweet, the NBC uh, – the Olympics have extended their coverage with NBC through 2032, and I don't have an overwhelming opinion on it. I just think that's good. I think they do a good job. I I like uh, Costas, uh, Pink Eye, and all, but uh, I just hope there's still a world then. I know that's, that's 2032 a is a long time yeah. out. It feels like that's you know one of those years that was in a movie once, and the whole world was ice. And the only person left was Will Smith and his son or something. Uh, right. <laughs> I know. I, we entered the future sometime, I think, like five, six years ago. It's really it's really a weird time. Like, if you said, like, 1999 to a kid or something like that, they'd be like, oh, that's so long ago. And it's yeah. Like, no, that was, like, that was, like, five years ago. Fuck. All right. We are going to uh, take a break. We got Jonah Carey on the show later. We got Sean McIndoe on the show later. And, uh... Right now, we're going to come back with uh, Robert Klemko from the Monday Morning Quarterback. Our next guest is from Chicago, Illinois and is a graduate of the journalism program at Maryland. Uh, he started his professional career at USA Today before moving to Sports Illustrated, where he is a staff member for the great Monday morning quarterback website, uh, started by Peter King, and he's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Robert Klemko. How's it going today, Robert? Doing really well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate hearing the fight song. Yeah, uh, that's usually a hit. People like that, you know. <laughs> Actually, one kind of funny one, uh, Tim Layden, who's a colleague of yours, uh, went to a D3 school that I'm not even sure what it is off the top of my head. And uh, I was looking for it all day. I couldn't find it. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to call the uh, the um, <laughs> the uh, whatever, the college. And I talked to the SID there, and he sent me an MP3. And I, I don't think uh, – I think that's probably like – it's probably really hard at this point to like shock Tim Layden, but I think we did it. You know what I mean? <laughs> what school did he go to? Uh, you know, I, I'll, 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 as we're talking, I'll, I'll bring his bio up and look it up. But it was a D3 school. It's like a small one that I had no business finding. And the only reason <laughs> I found it is because I, I happened to have the time while I was waiting to call him. And I was like, I'm just going to call the SID and see if he's sitting at his desk. <laughs> and <laughs> he happened to be, and uh, it, it just worked out. But um, I don't know about you, but – this uh, this uh, stalling the NFL drafting isn't working for me. Like I hope this is mm-hmm. a, I hope this is a one and done. He went to Williams College, uh, Layden, by the way. But uh, okay, yeah, uh, I hope that uh, we go back to April next year because it's just too long. What do you think? You know, it's uh, I'm actually going to write about it for tomorrow after talking with Peter about it uh, just about an hour ago, and and I think there's a lot of problems with it. Um. The biggest being that you're kind of stunting the rookie development in a lot of ways and, and replicating what happened with the 2011 lockout. Um, you have these guys getting drafted, whereas before they were able to participate in the May minicamp right off the bat, you know, hop in there. 
uh, aided by these quick um, contract negotiations that came out of the new CBA, where there was a lot of less wiggle, wiggle room. And now you're kind of eliminating that advantage, and you're putting these players at a disadvantage to the veteran free agent signees for each team who already have their playbooks and have had them for, uh, you know, in some cases a couple months now. So I think that becomes an issue. You also open up these rookies to two or three more weeks of being broke, which means that they're taking out more money on high-interest loans. Huh. They're getting approached by more and more people who, you know, who want them to invest in whatever random shady enterprise they're getting into. That's really interesting. Is, is, is this something that is there? Does this something a common problem? Maybe that we don't realize. Are there guys going into these loans expecting to have a big payday, and then maybe they slip, and then like is that a, a maybe a common problem for players? Is something that gets talked about internally? Something you might know about that I wouldn't, or I, I think it's talked about in agent circles. I mean, there are a lot of agents who will give their guys loans personally and expect to be paid back, um, and that'll take the player a long time over which they accrue interest. Um, I, I don't think there, I think there are some, I think there are probably a lot of players that live modestly up until that first paycheck, but a lot of these guys, especially in the era where, uh, of the huge signing bonuses for first round that, that were passed now, but a lot of those guys at that time um, were spending a lot of money pre-draft, and I think that's something that's been curtailed a bit, um, but then you also have a lot of hangers-on. I remember talk, uh, going to the um, first-round draft party for Tyron Matthew last year in New York, and, and obviously he wasn't drafted, but he threw a party right. uh, anyway. And I met five guys that claimed to be Tyron Matthew's marketing guy. So presumably, uh, you know, three or four, or maybe even all five of those guys are getting some kind of cut out of that first deal. And, and for what? Um, so I think that a lot of these players... They're not with their agents all the time. Maybe they don't have great support systems in their families. They're vulnerable in these several weeks leading up to the draft. And the last thing we need to do is elongate that waiting period. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting, something I'd have never thought of. Do, do you think that – I know there was a rumor that potentially this is all because of the Rockettes. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you heard that report, but there is a report yeah, that, that yeah. yeah that maybe that this was just pushed back because of the Rockettes. Let's assume that that's not the case; that the NFL just decided to do this. Are you getting a sense one way or another that they might want to go back, or do you think they're looking at this as a success? Or I mean, I can't imagine uh, that. But yeah, actually, I, I believe it was reported today. I cannot remember by whom that the NFL was considering pushing back next year's draft two weeks because. Um, I guess they're they're happy with the way this process went. Pushing so I think it back two weeks further? Uh, no, back two weeks from its planned date. Um, oh, date. okay. Uh, all right. Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah. I I think that the uh, the Rockets thing is is a poor excuse because they could have the draft anywhere. I mean, there's right. there's ten places in the New York area that they would be happy to host them. So that was um that was a smokescreen for what they really intend to do, which is move this thing back. And if they and I feel like if they felt as though they weren't getting a lot of backlash, then they, they were going to do it. And, and I think they probably will do it regardless. Well, one thing that has worked out for them is that it's a good thing this didn't happen last year when, I mean, it was just pretty much all the top of the draft. We're talking about offensive linemen 
uh, the whole build up last year. This is certainly a much much sexier draft this year. There's been a lot more. Uh, there's tons of quarterbacks. There's pulver, pulver, uh, you know pulverizing figures like uh, Johnny Manziel in the conversation. You know, there's all kinds of incredible draft storylines that you can run a million ways with. What's interested you the most? What are the kind of things going into this first round that that you're interested in the most before the draft, and now you're interested in the most in seeing how they might play out? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, you, you mentioned the quarterbacks, and and you know, I, I'm a little bit tired of reading about Manziel. One thing I'm fascinating in is how Teddy Bridgewater out of Louisville went from being talked about at the end of the season, uh, having one of the stati- best statistical seasons that we've ever seen, really. Um, as a first pick in the draft, and now they're talking about him as a second rounder. Right. Yeah. Um, and and I think that people are quick to say that it's the media overinflating the effect of his bad pro day and 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 everything else. But a lot of these guys, these draft picks who are well plugged in, aren't just saying this, you know, you know, out of the blue. They're hearing it from NFL evaluators. So it's interesting how a lot of teams will tell you that they go by tape, they go by the tape, and then everything else is just kind of icing on the cake. Um, but I think a lot of them are more affected by the postseason spring aspect of the draft research than they would like to admit. Do you trust... I'm going to ask you about this, and, and, and I, 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 I didn't grow up the way he did, and, and I understand, and, and I know that there's a... Uh, if you have this opinion, there, there's a, a perception that it, maybe it comes from a place of race, but I promise you it doesn't. But I will say that I'm – Clowney makes me nervous at, just because – and I'm, I want to compare him to Adrian Peterson for a second. And uh, Adrian Peterson is uh, a guy who I've followed since 17. Um, I'm, I have a friend uh, I grew up. He went. He, he backed up Jason Bowser at Oklahoma. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, so I've always, uh, been a fan of Oklahoma and actually Adrian Peterson is like the first guy who I ever, uh, followed during the recruiting process, so to speak. I'm not a big recruiting guy, but I happen to hear about this guy and, uh, I watched every single game he ever played, uh, at Oklahoma and his very last run as a Sooner, um, was a 25 yard touchdown run in overtime against Boise state right until the last second of Adrian Peterson's college career, you felt like he was giving everything he had to the university. And to me, that was the kind of football player that I wanted, that I would want every day. Like, I feel like that's the kind of temperament you need to be successful at the next level. And when I look back at Clowney's last year at South Carolina, there's just so much there. And I can't admit to being as intimately knowing as much about it as intimately as I would have Adrian. Cause I certainly didn't watch every game he played, but there was a drop off statistically. And a lot of that might have to do with the way other teams played and prepared for him. I'm willing to admit that, but there was always these kinds of things uh, about how uh, Spurrier maybe thought they weren't getting the most out of him, that maybe he was uh, trying to preserve himself and just things like that. Just make me nervous. Am I crazy? Uh, because uh, he certainly fell back a little bit last year, but then when it got to be preparing for the draft, and he's such a great athlete, all those measurables, he shot up to being maybe the top guy. But he makes me nervous. I know that's a long-winded question that might not even be a question anymore because I kind of got caught babbling a little bit. But 
he makes me nervous. I don't know what you think. No, I mean, I'm actually completely with you on that one. I think that, I mean, you mentioned Adrian Peterson's work ethic, and he's second to none, and that's why he's probably the greatest running back of the modern era, if not in the history of football. Um, I think there are guys who survive and thrive in the NFL on God-given talent. I think they're very few and far between, but people feel like Jadavion Clowney is going to be one of those guys. Um, Randy Moss comes to mind, a, a guy who, over the course of his career, varying levels of interest, varying levels of effort in his craft, but everywhere he went, uh, with the exception of Oakland, he was excellent. Um, so I think that people hope Clowney can be one of those high work ethic guys, but they're prepared for the contingency that he's not, just knowing that he can make an impact set on the field day one. Now, if I'm an evaluator, I want nothing to do with him. Um, I'm with you. I want a football team full of guys that want to be the best, uh, want to be better than they were the day before. Um, but if I'm one of these coaches in, in the top five and there's a lot of pressure riding on this pick that I make right here and i got to please management, i got to please the fans, i got to draft a player who's going to make an impact from day one, um, I can see I could be talked into taking Clowney, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And it makes me think of Khalil Mack a little bit. Because some of their measurables aren't that far off. And obviously he's done it the hard way, coming from a school like UB, which isn't far from where I live. And I can tell you that they lie regularly to maintain a 15,000 uh, average attendance to even be a D1 program. <laughs> I, I, I promise you that there's not 15,000 people there every week. Uh, so uh, I just wonder if maybe... Um, if maybe that's a that's a guy that that intan if everything else is equal, maybe the intangibles for a guy like Mac versus a guy like Clowney might might make him a smarter pick. Yeah, I I think the people see the ceiling as being higher on Clowney because they acknowledge that maybe the effort wasn't there senior year when everybody was telling him that he could play in the NFL right now if it weren't for the rules. Right, and he wasn't and he wasn't trying to get himself hurt. Again, I think that's a terrible attitude, and I wouldn't want to, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere near it. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the way things are going. I think if maybe if a prospect had that attitude or displayed what Clowney displayed, what he did this year, fifteen, twenty years ago, around some of these old school personnel people, he'd have a bigger problem. But now he doesn't. So, um, but Mac has shown a lot of the same intangibles, uh, similar reach, similar size, similar speed, similar strength. Um, but Mac didn't put on tape uh, some of the things and, and some of the impact that Clowney had against, as you mentioned, a, a higher level of competition in the SEC. Right. You know, there's not many writers out there who have wrote as smartly as you have in the last year about race. I think you've uh, some of your pieces I've read. You just you hit it, and and you're smart about it, and it, and every word I read, I I just like wow, this guy's in touch. And I was worried when I was talking about the clowny thing because I know that some people have said that people who feel the way I do are being naive, are potentially being racist, aren't thinking about where the kid came from and what his life was like. Where do you think race plays in? to the issue that we've been talking about for the last few minutes? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a fascinating question. Um, I wonder if Clowney's effort would be questioned as much as it is if he were white. Um, not saying that it, it, it would be right if people backed off of him. I just think that he would get 
more of a pass in a lot of situations. Um, you, you use the Teddy Bridgewater comparison to any of these other quarterbacks. Uh, I don't know why uh, Teddy is being scrutinized as heavily as he has been with everything he did and, and, and the way he's performed. Um, I don't understand it, but I think there still is a, a little bit of bias towards African-American quarterbacks uh, in the NFL, despite all the gains made by you know, Doug Williams and, and, and Michael Vick early on in his career. Um, you know, Dante Culpepper, Byron Leftwich, the, the list goes on and on, but I think there is still a, little, a, a small amount of bias in, among certain evaluators. And isn't there um, maybe even, sorry, but I, I just want to add to that, isn't there even maybe a little bit more bias when they're not necessarily athletic quarterbacks? Yeah, um, well, I think that a lot of people looked at Robert Griffin and wanted him to be something that he wasn't. Um, as as a quarterback, and, and a lot of people wanted him to be a scrambler, um, not recognizing that the best thing for him, the best thing for any quarterback's longevity, is to be a pocket passer. Um, but it was always assumed that Robert Griffin was going to be one of these, you know, two way threats of Michael Vick type player. And now people, because he got hurt, are just getting used to the idea that he's a regular quarterback who's going to have to develop like a regular quarterback. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, we're talking with uh, Robert Klemko from the Monday Morning Quarterback. Does a great job over there. Uh, about a, uh, love the site. We love the site. We've had everyone on now. You're the last uh, last full-time staffer, so we've had everyone on. We really enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, wondering about some other things with uh, with the first round. I, everyone's always worried about a bust, right? You know, like that's the big worry, like especially when you're in that top ten uh, in Buffalo, they've had a few of them. Mike Williams comes to mind. I think they picked him fourth overall, a bust. When you look at the guys talked about in the top 10, 15 picks, are there any guys you look at as really safe prospects? Really safe. You know, I think Khalil Mack is a safe one. Um, I, I, I just feel like uh, while he doesn't have the hugest upside, which is how people describe Clowney, I, I think he's a lock to be a solid starter, at least in the NFL. Um, I, I love everything Mike Evans and Sammy Watkins have put on tape. I think everything suggests that those guys are going to be uh, big contributors going forward. Um, some of the offensive linemen, um, especially T- uh, Taylor Lewan, uh, I, I think he's going to be a solid pro. I think there's question marks, you know, for all the guys in the first round, uh, just because of the success rate of, of NFL players traditionally. Uh, it's not like the league is, is, is really expert at picking these guys. You never know what's in between the ears until you get them in the room. Um, and, and for me to guess is, is even, you know, I'm, I'm even less knowledgeable than these guys who have been studying these players for several months. So, uh, But just looking on tape at the most pro-ready guys, those would be my four. You mentioned uh, being at a party last year. How are you going to spend the first round this year? What, where are you going to be, and, and what are you going to be watching for the most? Well, my chance will be a little bit toned down this year. I'll be at Philadelphia uh, paying attention to what they do in the first round, and then we'll talk to um, some officials with the team and, and try to get an analysis up uh, the next day. Uh, you know, once again, I think that the biggest folly that we do as sports media is to try to judge these picks, these players, before the draft, after the draft, and what we don't do enough is look at drafts from three, four years ago and look at how they panned out and, and how that team's philosophy 
changed over the course of the next several seasons and, and the seasons before that. Um, but everybody wants to know about the players now, uh, but don't want to look at it from a historical perspective. What was it about the Eagles, uh, either if you decided or maybe it was someone above you decided, what do you think it was about that team in that city that makes them such an interesting place to cover for the first round? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, they need a wide receiver uh, after the departure of Deshaun Jackson. It'll be interesting to see who they fill that role with, knowing that it was um, it, they didn't like the chemistry there in the first place. Um, so, A, they've got to get a guy who can contribute, and B, they've got to get a guy who fits in the room. Um, it's interesting to me that they're kind of handing over the reins to Nick Foles, uh, who, you know, despite going to the Pro Bowl, has a relatively small sample size, did not start the entire season and only through a couple of exceptions, which is uh, a little bit ridiculous and, and nothing that you could expect him to duplicate uh, this year. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to keep up that pace over the uh, over the course of a career for sure. You mentioned wide receiver, and I think we could have maybe as many as eight uh, drafted in the first round, and you mentioned uh, Mike Evans and Sammy Watkins as maybe some, some guys. First, certainly they're going to be picked pretty high. As you get towards the the playoff teams uh, picking, as there's a few of them that might be interested in a wide receiver. Uh, who are some of the guys at the, at the bottom end of the first round wide receiver-wise that you think could be big scores for for a team that is maybe a, a piece or two away? Teams that are maybe a piece or two. Yeah, like I, I look at the Saints maybe as a team at, at uh, mm-hmm. 27 who maybe would be interested in a wide receiver, and they'd be maybe picking that 7th or 8th guy. You think there's still upside there down at that at that end at wide receiver? Or do you think that maybe uh, you'd be better off waiting until the second round and looking at a guy like the kid from Florida State, I think has been rumored as possibly a guy who could be there around the, uh, around the second round. What are your thoughts about the wide receivers as we get towards seven, eight, nine, ten ranked wise coming off the mm-hmm. board. Yeah. I think I think the people love how deep the class is. I mean Cody Latimer out of Indiana is a great example. Last year he probably would have gone in the first round, uh several years before that. But now I, I think the consensus is that he's a second rounder. Um I think as a consequence of uh, when you have any kind of deep position in a draft, you're gonna see guys, teams, uh wait and they'll let that um, they'll they'll use that first round pick on another position of need, and then identify a guy that they like who's supposed to be picked later in the second or third round. Um, when you talk to evaluators, scouting directors, they have a grade. Um, they'll grade you know twenty twenty five guys as first rounders, and and then after that, second rounders and third rounders, but they don't grade thirty two first rounders, and um, so. If a team has a bunch of first rounders in one position, they're paying attention to that. And, uh, you know, maybe if they have by the end of the first round four first round wide receivers left, then they'll wait until the second round and try to maximize the right. value of that pick. Right. Interesting. Uh, you can find Robert on Twitter. He's at Robert K L E M K O. Of course, the Monday Morning Quarterback.com. They do some great work there, as we've talked about on this show. And, and uh, well, they don't really need us to promote them anyway. There's uh, plenty of people saying great stuff about that site. And uh, it's great to have you on. Really appreciate uh, having you in. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks for your time. It was my pleasure. All right. Thanks, bud.
All right, I want to thank Robert Klemko for being on the podcast today. We've now had everyone of the main writers at the Monday Morning Quarterback on the podcast. We're excited about that. All right, real quick, uh, book club update. And that's just to say that up, up, and away, the kid, the hawk, rock, Vladdy, Pedro, LeGrand, Orange, Yuppie, the crazy business of baseball, and the ill-fated but unforgettable Montreal Expos by Jonah Carey has been our book club book of the month. And we're going to finish that in a second. Uh, Jonah Carey is going to come on with us and talk about about the book, do about a 25-minute interview or so about the book, and then we're going to move on uh, to the next one. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com or tweet us at sports underscore casters if there's any specific books you'd like to see us feature in the book club. We've been kind of, uh, for the last uh, three or four months, we've been just one after another we've had as the book club book of the month, and uh, we're kind of through all those now. And uh, it's on to the next round. Um, we gave away a copy of Up, Up, and Away, but we still do have a copy of Showtime, uh, Jeff Perlman's book, available. If you're interested in Showtime, uh, shoot me an email to sportscasters at gmail.com or tweet me at sports underscore casters, and uh, we could get that to you uh, if you're interested. We do have a copy of it. So uh, email me, let me know something you like about the show, and uh, I'll pick out the best one and send a copy of Showtime out to that person. Uh, So let's do this. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and talk about the Expos with Jonah Carey. Our next guest is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and is a graduate of the journalism program at Concordia University. He's a staff writer for the popular and awesome Grantland website, where he also hosts a podcast during the baseball season and has been making appearances on Baseball Tonight. Uh, His book, The Extra 2%, which focused on the rise of the Tampa Bay Rays, was a New York Times bestseller, and his current book... Up, Up, and Away, The Kid, The Hawk, Rock, Vladdy, Pedro, LeGrand, Orange, UP, The Crazy Business of Baseball, and The Ill-Fated But Unforgettable Montreal Expos has had him all over, including an appearance uh, with Seth Meyers on The Late Show. Uh, he is making his seventh appearance on the podcast today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Jonah Carey. What's up, Jonah? Hey, how you doing? How you doing, man? Good. I feel like this is a like this is a day that you know. In the, I said this is the seventh time. I feel like many of those other times we've talked about this day. Like I've always asked you, kind of all along the process, like, "Oh, how's the Expos book coming out? You know, what's going on with the Expos book?" And it's, it's kind of like it's finally here. One of those things, you know. And it's been really fun to read it with uh, with the listeners as part of the book club. And uh, I guess the first thing I, I want to ask you is kind of a kind of like a Christmas morning type question. Like, is it is it everything you thought it would be? I mean, it, it, that might seem like a silly question, but I'm thinking about this as just how personal the project was for you with, you know, how it must have been. We've talked about this, how it must be a dream to be able to write about the team you, you've you've uh, you've rooted for your whole life or, you know, and even championed post their existence. And now you've had a chance to share that story with the world and go on amazingly cool places like Seth Meyers and talk about it. Is it everything you thought it would be? Is it more somehow or? 
Well, I didn't, certainly at the beginning of the project, I didn't, um, actually, let's even go back further than that. I didn't necessarily want to do this in the first place. It was not my idea to write a book about the Expo. It was my editor's. My editor, same editor as the Extra 2%. Uh, he went to McGill in the late 90s. He was an American with Canadian parents who lived in the States, but then ended up going to school in Canada. And uh, it was his idea. He said, okay, we did the race book. We've got to do an Expo's book. He said, nobody cares about an Expo's book. Nobody's going to buy it. Nobody's going to be interested. And I wasn't saying that whatever out of false whatever you want to say. I just I, I didn't believe that anybody cared at all. And he basically said, no, no, it'll be good. It'll be fun. It'll be a passion project. And uh, we'll make it work. I said, all right, fine. We did it. Um, it was great. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I, I was thrilled to do it once I started doing it. Um, but uh, I just didn't expect much. And things have changed since 2011, since the Rage book came out. I mean, Grantland is, uh, you know, definitely a place that affords a higher profile or whatever. And uh, so that's been great. So I, more people probably read me now than before. But uh, still, I mean, it's, I don't think that it's, you know, there might be a few more people, fans of mine or whatever than there were before. But I, I think for the most part, people just kind of reacted well to this thing. It was just, oh, yeah, this is a cool story. You know, it is interesting. And even though it's the team that, if they still existed, would not have much attention, much less the fact that they're defunct, people can understand that there's something to history, there's something to storytelling, there's something to nostalgia, there's something to getting Pedro Martinez to talk to you very candidly about his career and about his life and about everything that's happened to him. That's really cool and fun, and, and that's what I went for. It wasn't, you know, obviously the book, is, it's about the Expos, there's no getting around that, but you do not need to give a fig about the Expos to enjoy the book. It's just a good time. Tons of storytelling. I put a little bit of myself in there, but for the most part, I try to get out of the way. And, uh, yeah, it, it was just really, really fun, and I think people reacted well to it. Let's talk a little bit about reporting the book. Uh, the last book we did was um, uh, the Showtime book by Jeff Perlman, and he had a really interesting time reporting the book in that some of the main characters that in the book he didn't get much access from. And I'm always curious about things like that. Were there any... Were there any interviews that you wanted for this book that you didn't get? Were there any interviews that you did for the book that you kind of did kind of for for thoroughness and it turned out to be a much have a much bigger impact on the book? Tell me a little bit about the reporting for the book, kind of what went well, what didn't, what went better than expected. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody talked to me. Uh, there were like one or two people that just – we're not available for various reasons, but, uh, I mean, the, the success rate was over 99%. I got pretty much everybody. So, uh, I did 130 odd interviews, I think. And it was, you know, ex players were certainly in there, but general managers and managers and, uh, fans and politicians and, and everything you could possibly imagine. It was really, I tried to paint a very complete picture. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, politics in 1970s in the book because it was relevant. And you'll read the book, you'll be like, Oh, Wow, I didn't know that, especially if you're not from Montreal, you'd be like, I had no idea about that. That's really interesting. It does have an impact on the team, and it's just a, you know, a compelling story in its own right. So uh, that was really a lot of fun. You know, when it comes to interviews, obviously, you know, you try to come in with positive expectations about everybody, but I will tell you one that stood out to me, and I said this on another, uh, when I've discussed this before about the book, but Cliff Floyd was terrific. And I, it wasn't that I underestimated Cliff Floyd because of some malice or whatever. I just said, okay, he's like any other expert. He'll be pretty good. He'll tell me some good stories. But we ended up spending two hours over breakfast in Miami, and in-person interviews are generally better than uh, than phone interviews, mind you, but incredible chat. We talked about all this stuff. There was so much that I didn't even use, which was so compelling, but it just there wasn't quite 
room for it. It didn't quite fit the narrative, but he's telling me stories about this catastrophic wrist injury they had in 1995 when he was just starting his career and about the, you know, the strike happened in 1994. This was his rookie season. He was just getting into the league at that point, and he said that he expected to win the World Series. Um, this was pre-Derek Jeter, but looking back on it, he said, in my mind, that was going to be Derek Jeter's career, that I was going to win a World Series in my rookie year, and then we would go on to win three or four more, because that team, I am not exaggerating when I tell you, had dynastic talent. Think about if all of those guys never left. If Larry Walker and Marquise Grissom and Moises Alou and Pedro Martinez and John Wetland and Cliff Floyd and on and on and on, all, and a bunch of good supporting players, by the way, who are less famous but very good, if they just stayed, you know, if they just re-upped with the Expos and just stayed for even four or five, six years, that would have been unbelievable. That Braves dynasty, I will submit, you know, the, the fact that they've won 14 uh, division titles in 15 years, ain't no way in hell that happens if the Expos stay together. I can't guarantee that the Expos pass the Braves and become better over the long haul, but I can tell you that they would have been a formidable challenger and the Expos would have taken down a bunch of NL East titles themselves. And yeah, you know, they would have at least had a chance uh, in there to win a World Series or two. So that, that was very interesting, very insightful, and, and very emotional from Cliff Floyd. Really, really enjoyed that chat. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I wonder how, you know, Expos fans were obviously routed to that opportunity, but maybe baseball fans were as well. Because the Braves were never really pushed all that much in that division. It would have been interesting if they would have had a serious competitor every single year, year in and year out, win some, lose some. And I wonder if they would have had a little bit of better playoff success if getting to the playoffs wasn't maybe taken for granted by them year in and year out. So that's an interesting thing to look back on, maybe. Yeah. 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 you kind of live this story in a lot of ways, and we've talked about that, and you've talked about that, what a huge Expos fan you are. And and uh, I wonder, what was there a moment, was there a story, was there something uh, that kind of stopped you, that kind of made you say, wow, even Jonah Carey, the Expos fan, I, I just never knew this, or I can't believe this, or was there a part or parts in the book that uh, – that made you just appreciate being able to do it all the more because you got to know that part of Expo's history that maybe you didn't before? Oh, sure. I mean, I was born in the mid-'70s, so, you know, I don't have any baseball memories before the 80s. And, uh, you know, I read and I know about the history to some extent, but there was some stuff that you just couldn't know unless you were at Jerry Park. I never went to Jerry Park. I wasn't, you know, I was either an infant or non-existent, and so I didn't get to do that. So hearing stories from that ballpark was very interesting. Talking to Rusty Staub, Rusty Staub's, uh, you know, first go-round with the Expos was all before I was born. The second go-round, I wasn't old enough to follow baseball. So that was all new to me, and, and I loved doing that. I mean, as a journalist, the job of a journalist basically is to go learn things, take someone by the hand and say, look, look, look at this. Isn't this so interesting? It's so cool. Come, look at this. Experience this with me. And it could be statistical, which is some of what I do at Grantland, or in the case of the book where there's no stats at all, it's just, you know, historical stuff. It's, it's uh, you know, hearing it from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. And, and so that was really a lot of fun and, and tons of learning about that. And, uh, and yeah, you know, and, and some statistical nuggets, too. You know, one thing is I didn't come in and use WRC Plus or whatever, but I, I tried to tease out a little bit of, of uh, insight into why it is that things happen or didn't happen, you know, via statistics that were a little bit simpler. And one that, came, that I came across was just unbelievable. Uh, the Expos coming into the 80s, and this is not Montreal media, this was Sports Illustrated. This was major U.S. publications declared this to be so. They called them the team of the 80s coming into 1980. It was a given that the Expos were going to be a monster team coming into the 80s because they had Andre Dawson, future Hall of Famer, 
Gary Carter, future Hall of Famer. Rain starts a year uh, in 81, or he kind of made his debut in 1980. He should be a Hall of Famer. Uh, Steve Rogers, best pitcher in franchise history, if you talk about the total track record. Larry Parrish, Warren Cromarty, great, great, loaded team. So many stars. Okay, so they didn't win. They didn't become the team of the 80s. Well, what the heck happened? So part of it is cocaine use. There were a lot of guys that ended up on coke, and it didn't do them any favors. Ellis Valentine's entire career short-circuited as a result. By the way, tons of Ellis Valentine stuff in the book. He's very contrite, some very uh, jaw-dropping stories, quite frankly, about everything that went down with his coke use and all that stuff, and other guys, too. That's one thing. Some people said, well, it's a lack of leadership. Larry Parrish, great player, you know, real uh, great clubhouse guy, gets traded, and the thought was, well, that torpedo the team, that was the cause. Oh, okay, you know. I'll put some credence behind those things. It's certainly possible that that's the case. But what you find is that this team didn't do a good job of roster construction, which is a very basic concept, and it's not super statistical per se. It's just understanding that if you have a great catcher and a great center fielder or whatever, your second baseman and shortstop and bullpen can't suck. I mean, you still need to have okay players at that position because it's not basketball where you can put LeBron on your team and you instantly make the playoffs even if you're terrible. You need to have some supporting cast. Okay, let's look at the second baseman for the Expos from 1978 through 1983. This is a period of six years. The primary second baseman from 78 through 83, six seasons, meaning the guy who started the most uh, in those seasons, so basically the main second baseman for six years, combined hit zero home runs, zero home runs from the primary second baseman of the Montreal Expos at the time when they were supposed to be developing a dynasty in six years. That is how you go from being supposedly the team of the 80s to a team that was very good, but not quite good enough. You don't take care of the little things. And management in those years did not take care of the little things. Too many holes in the bullpen. Shortstop got old. They had Chris Byer, who was good, but stopped being good. And second base was a disaster. You kind of answered this a little bit or, or kind of hinted at it, talked about it yourself, but it was something I definitely wanted to ask you. And uh, we've, we've said this uh, when we've talked together about how, you know, a lot of times – when I call up Jonah Carey, I want to talk to Jonah Carey. I know that I want to talk a little bit advanced stats. I want to get some advanced staff, stats stuff. Uh, and maybe there's a couple baseball writers out there who I might call that don't focus on the advanced stats quite as much. And then there's tweeners, too. Like I always tease Jeff Passan that he's kind of a tweener. He's, he, he's, yep. he's, he wants to be an advanced stats guy, but he's not quite all the way there. But um, uh, when... Uh, and, and your last book, the, that is certainly very evident. Uh, but this is this is different. This isn't a book about advanced stats. This is a, a storytelling book. And I just wanted to – I was just curious, like, as a writer and writing this, like, did it make you did – it, did it, does it make you want to write like this more sometimes in your regular life, quote-unquote? Do, do, do sometimes well, yeah. you want to just, like, get into doing – some more stuff like this and, and maybe not totally being the stats guy all the time? Um, well, first of all, I reject the notion that I'm only a stats guy. I know that's not what you're saying, but, right, not, uh, yeah. you know, I, I just read uh, like 3,000 words about Troy Lewitsky today. There are a lot of stats. There's heat maps. There's a lot of stuff. I think if you dropped in from Mars and you knew nothing about baseball, yeah, you know, it would definitely be uh, an article that you would have to kind of get used to and what are the terms and so forth. But, there's a ton of storytelling. I mean, it starts off by talking about, you know, just kind of a, holy crap, this guy's on fire. You know, there, there's a lot of that. And that is my job. My job is to take stats and make them interesting and fun through lively writing, through storytelling. So, uh, yeah, you know, the Expos book has very few stats. I mean, it's all stories. And that's interesting. 
But it's not like I'm lacking it in, in my everyday job. My everyday job has plenty of that stuff. I enjoy it a lot. I think the balance is interesting. I also think it's valuable. And you mentioned Passon. Um, yeah, Passon doesn't include quite as many stats as I do, but he's a great writer. He's a great storyteller, and he's doing, he has that same skill. He can take uh, sometimes difficult concepts and make them easier. And not only easier, but fun. You know, that is, uh, I think there are a few of us out there trying to do that. And uh, and I think it's a market that, uh, that that should be addressed, that should be served. My colleagues at Grandland, Gene, Louise, they have a whole roster of these guys. Bill Barnwell, Zach Lowe. I mean, I tweeted today, and I meant this sincerely. Zach Lowe is the best sports writer in America because Zach Lowe takes incredibly complicated basketball concepts and makes them really accessible and really fun. And not only that, he's also a phenomenal reporter. He's just got sources on sources. And, you know, he wrote a piece about Mark Jackson today, and he's talking about all the strife within the uh, – Warriors front office and all this stuff that happened and all that. And, I mean, I have some sources, too, but, I mean, he's just killing it. You know, he's out there doing all this great stuff. These are all good skills. Storytelling is great. Statistical analysis is great. Reporting is great. Uh, you know, being crisp and to the point is great. These are all things to strive toward. And uh, I could do this for 100 years and not perfect the craft. I'm very much at the beginning of kind of learning how to do this. Grantland is only three years old. I've been there uh, – yeah, just under three years, and, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll go along, and, and uh, next year, five years from now, ten years from now, it'll gradually get a little bit better. I'll figure out a way to, you know, tell stories a little, a little bit better. Maybe I'll be, uh, you know, even better at teasing out the stats a little bit, or being a reporter, or whatever. This is always a process, and, and these are all good skills to have, and I love reading uh, the best story. You know, a guy like S.L. Price at Sports Illustrated, those guys are phenomenal. They never use stats. They, they just do a great job of that, and I really like reading... Dave Cameron, who's, you know, definitely a crisp and solid and accessible writer, but just has mastery over statistical concepts. Good writing can happen in all forms of ways, and, uh, and I'm happy to get a chance to do all that stuff, particularly with this book, which, as you said, I mean, you know, I, I do storytelling all the time, but there was more of it in here, and there was more reporting, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, you know, one thing that uh, when I was going through the book, I kept thinking a lot about the Sabres um, and for whatever reason, with the Expos. I, I don't know why. And uh, I was thinking of myself as a Sabres fan and yourself as an Expos fan. And uh, even in the uh, in these books, when you get them from the publishers, they come with these like uh, these uh, sheets of paper, kind of like, I guess maybe if you, did, you, want to inter- you do want to do an interview but you don't want to read the book, it gives you some stuff you could talk about. And uh, there's a bio for you and stuff like that. And, and I was just looking at this like a little while ago before I called you. And I noticed that um, in it, there's all these uh, sad moments in Expo's history. Uh, you know, they mentioned the uh, w- the home run that kept them out of the World Series and the strike in 84 and um, all these different kind of down moments. And I was thinking about in the book, when I was reading the book too, uh, that sometimes we get focused on these. Like, as a Sabres fan, uh, all we ever talk about the last however many years is July 1st. 2007, you know, the day that Drury and uh, and Breer walked away or uh, Brian Campbell flipping the puck out of the arena in Game 7 against Carolina and keeping us from that cup, which we probably would have won against Edmonton. Uh, what about the other moments? What about the, the – the, and they're in the book, obviously, but did you want to – because it just doesn't seem like people ask you as much about the great moments as Expos fans, as, as in Expos fans. What, what are your go-to YouTube Expo moments – when you want to feel great about being a fan of the team? 
Well, first of all, the book is I think more about the positive way, stuff way, than way the negative more. stuff. Right, way more. I, I guess my point yeah. was that it seems like the you know the the book is way more of that, but like the little fire that they give is more about the other thing, sure. and a lot of the things you've been asked is more about the other stuff. I guess I was was the point yeah, I was making. In a I, I guess so. Uh, my favorite moment is in 1993, and you have to understand. I mean, the papers have made the playoffs many times. You, by the way, uh, unbelievable you didn't mention Brett Hall's uh, skate in the crease. I thought that was like a rite of passage. <laughs> I know you're not a, you're, you know, you were a kid at the time, but still, I mean, that's, well, that seems like the go-to. Yeah, well, that <laughs> that's almost too painful. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, the thing about the Expos, unlike the Sabres, uh, mind you, baseball teams, way fewer make the playoffs than, Right. Hockey teams, but the, the Expos only made the playoffs once in their 36 year history. Uh, I was seven, and you know I remember they, I remember pretty well the uh, Rick Monday home run, which you talked about, which kept them out of the World Series. They were literally uh, one game, one swing away from from getting in, and then they lost on that home run. Um, there was a home run in that series hit by the Expos. Got him Jerry White hit a three run homer, which might have been the best moment in franchise history, but I don't remember it. Um, the best moment that I remember would have to be a regular season moment because it was obviously not in 81, the only playoff year. And it was in 1993, not even 94, actually, which was the year that they had the best record in baseball. And as you mentioned, the strike wiped out the season. But in 93, they were just starting to really get good. And uh, they get to July. They're, they're pretty good at that point. But they're still way behind the Phillies. The Phillies were in first place. They had a very strong team, veteran-laden team. They go on to make the World Series. They played against the Blue Jays. and what happened there. Anyway, so... They go on this run where they win 17 out of 18 games, this monster streak, and suddenly they're right on the heels of the Phillies in September. They have a real shot to pass them and win the division, which they've never done outright. Even in 81, they, it was a strike year. It was weird. They kind of got a share of this strike-split season, and they kind of snuck into the playoffs that way. They had a real shot to chase down the Phillies. So they go, they're playing at home against the Phillies, three-game series. Uh, first game is on a Friday night. And this one thing about the Expos was, especially on this side of the border, the team would get crucified for the lack of attendance. Okay, first of all, in the 80s, the Expos, in 82 and 83 in particular, outdrew the New York Yankees. They had the second highest attendance in the league in 82 and 83, including higher than the high and mighty New York Yankees. People used to come to Olympic Stadium big time. There are all kinds of reasons, which is discussed, which are discussed in the book, yep. why the attendance petered out. But it's not like there are bad fans or no fans. That is BS, and I reject that notion. Anyway, so for this game in 1993 that we're discussing, 41,000 people showed up at the stadium. It was a packed house. It was insane, and I was there. Okay? So they're playing the Phillies. They're down 7-4 going into the bottom of the seventh inning. Uh, they're going to bring in a pinch hitter. Two outs. You know, they want to score runs. They need to get a guy who's going to get a hit. Okay. So they look down the bench, and they, they call Curtis Pride off the bench. Curtis Pride was a pretty okay prospect, but they had really great prospects. Cliff Lloyd, Rondell White, they had some guys coming up who were supposed to be stars. And uh, they call Pride. You know, they, need, they wanted a left-handed bat. And they thought it was the right situation. Pride had one major league at bat to that point that was on the road. So this was the first time that he'd ever played a game at Olympic Stadium. Okay. So they put him in that spot. Seven fours, I said, they're down three runs, two men on base. First pitch, slams a double into the gap in left center, scores two runs, seven six Phillies. People lose their minds. You know, the seven out of, 17 out of 18 streak and this big series against the Phillies in a packed house and this hit, people are going nuts. Two run double, ah, cheering, cheering, cheering. The Phillies, uh, make a pitching change. For seven minutes, there is a standing ovation. I was there. I can confirm. And I watched it on YouTube. It was seven minutes. People are cheering and yelling and going crazy. Pry calls time, walks over to third base coach. He's kind of going over the signs. Jerry Manuel was the third base coach. 
And Jerry Manuel is, is you know, mim- he's miming something. He's making a signal. He's basically, what he's doing is he's signaling, hey, you need to tip your cap, tip your cap. Well, Curtis Pride couldn't quite figure out what he was saying at first because Curtis Pride is deaf. Curtis Pride not only could not hear Jerry Manuel saying tip your cap, tip your cap, he couldn't hear the crowd either. 41,000 people cheering for seven minutes, and he cannot hear it. So he finally tips his cap because he kind of figures out what the hand signal is. Now, the one thing that he could do is read lips. So when they interview him after the game, you know, you speak concisely and whatever, and, and people, uh, and he could read lips. So they ask him after the game, Curtis Bright, who is deaf, cannot hear any of this. They ask him, you know, was there anything, I mean, you know, even a little ringing or a something or a sound or whatever. He said, man, I just, I couldn't hear any of it, whatever. I, I, I'm aware that all these people were cheering, but I couldn't hear it. But he said he could feel the vibrations of the cheering through the turf as he was standing on the field. That, to me, is the best moment that I have experienced in Expo's history because it was huge. It was this, uh, in the middle of a pennant race, it was a big hit. I mean, all that stuff is, is great. But it really exemplified the fact that when the fans uh, were, when the circumstances were right, the fans would not only turn out, but they could go toe-to-toe with any, if you name the most rabid fan base, Red Sox fans, whatever you want to say, and Expo's fans could be right there with them, cheering their asses off and going, like, going crazy. It was, it was something, it was memorable, uh, and I describe it at length in the book, even longer than what I just did, and I'll never forget it. Yeah, up, up and away, the kid, the hawk, rock, Vladdy, Pedro, Legrand, Orange, UP, the crazy business of baseball, and the ill-fated but unforgettable Montreal Expos is the book by Jonah Carey we've been featuring as our book club book of the month this month, and I asked that question just because I knew I'd get an incredibly passionate answer like that, and there's all kinds of great stuff and stories like that in the book, and it's one we highly recommend. Uh, Jordan's been a great friend to the podcast. We really appreciate all the times you've been on. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Jonah Carey, and he writes regularly at Grantland.com. You can find his columns there, including one that he just tweeted about, about Troy, Troy Tulewski, whose name I say a different way every single time. Uh, <laughs> Tulewski. Tulewski. Yeah, you know, every time it's something different, so it's, it's a fun one. But uh, uh, last thing, let's end on this. So you've been just about everywhere. Have you, had a, ha- have you had a favorite spot? It seemed like you had a lot of fun on Seth Meyers' show. Is that, oh, yeah. Is I mean, that, was that, that your that, favorite so far? Yeah. Well, the thing is, there's a couple of things. Going. First of all, I mean, it's obviously it was a high-profile case, so that was fun. Uh, Myers was really cool. He's a huge sports fan, and I mean, me aside, he's made a point of having sports guests on. I don't mean Michael Jordan or, or Mike Tyson or Wayne Gretzky. I mean, he has had writers on. He's had conversations with people about sports. You know, the way that you went on a podcast, he had Costa Kennedy on, uh, who I had on my podcast. He wrote a great book about Pete, Pete Rose, Rose recently, yeah. mm-hmm. and I just talked about Pete Rose. You know, he didn't. It doesn't have to be only starlets or, or whatever. It can be. Uh, you know, people just who wrote a book or their columnists or whatever. He had uh, Sean Casey and Kevin Millar on, and they talked about, you know, baseball. They're MLB Network guys, and it was a good chat conversation. So it was in keeping with that. It was great. He was a terrific interview, super knowledgeable. Like, you know, when you do a – if you ever watch a late-night show, you'll see an interview, and then after they'll go to commercial, and you'll see the host kind of lean over and whisper something to the, to the guest. We were having a real conversation. We were talking about Gregory Polanco – who is a prospect for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, if you are a hardcore baseball fan, of course you know who Gregory Polanco is, but this guy's hosting late-night television, and we're talking all about it because he's a Pirates fan. He has roots in Pittsburgh, and he's very interested in Gregory Polanco. I thought that was unbelievable. It was a great chat. You know, he kind of turned me loose and let me do what, it, what I wanted. But I'll tell you something. Aside from that, it was fun, and it was uh, exciting, and, and Myers was great. 
the thing that killed me was the other guests on the show that night. So one of them was Sofia Vergara, who was obviously very attractive and famous and whatever. That, that was fine. But the other one, if you watch Game of Thrones, you'll know what I'm talking about, yep. is Natalie Dormer. Natalie Dormer plays Queen Marjorie Tyrell on Game of Thrones. Now, I love Game of Thrones, and Marjorie Tyrell is uh, an incredibly cool character. Awesome. So interesting, smart, thinking one step ahead of the other characters, whatever. Great. And I met her, and she was even cooler in real life. She was fantastic. We take a picture together. She comes off the stage, and I'm walking on stage. She high-fives me. She says, go get him, Jonah, or whatever. Crush it, you know. She was just this cool, cool lady. Was was fantastic. So uh, that was honestly, I might have geeked out about that more than anything. I, you know, I posted a, a you know, and I'm not a, I don't know. I, I definitely said I was on Myers or whatever. There's kind of a fine line between self promotion and being a jerk about it. But I couldn't help myself. I posted a picture with Nat Dormer with Marjorie Tyrell, and people lost their minds. Forget about oh yeah, I'm talking about Tim Raines on television or whatever. It's Queen Marjorie Tyrell. That was very exciting. I got fired up about that. And, uh, you know, it's cool. It's cool when you watch people on TV and it's like, oh, yeah, they're a great actor. And it turns out that they're uh, nice people in real life. So that was it for me. That was definitely the capper. Well, this has been very cool to uh, speak to a very happy and passionate and pumped Jonah Carey, that's for sure. Uh, really excited for you. Love the book. Um, hope a lot of our listeners enjoyed it as well. And the publisher was nice enough to give us a copy, which we did get to give away to a listener. So it's been great. Thank you for everything you've always done for us. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, I'll talk to you soon, Jonah. All right, the sportscasters is going into beta mode right now. We uh, have experimented over the years here with some different segments. Yeah, this is like the us segment. The yeah, mid, the middle segment. So, here. what are we gonna do, right? So we we have some mainstays like uh, five on fantasy, right? Which I think we're gonna do next week post draft. Uh-huh. We'll see where our first rounds would be at, and maybe talk a little bit about who we think will have an impact fantasy wise that are drafted. You know, based on where people end up. So probably in this spot next week we'll probably do five on fantasy. But there's that. Uh, we've done countdowns. We've been doing the greatest of all time and having a lot of fun with that for a while. So we wanted to try something a little bit different, and we came up with the idea through a few tweets that we had sent out about opinions that we have that are generally not the common opinion about that particular topic. So generally speaking, uh, people like Christmas – Part of this segment might be me saying, I don't like Christmas. Right. That's completely false, but uh, that's an example, right? So the idea is Don and I are each going to come up with three opinions that go against the grain. Right. Generally speaking, this opinion we hold is not the opinion of the masses. That is correct. And it's in beta mode, and we're going to try it out right now. If anyone has any suggestions for this middle segment, if you want us to bring back Greatest of All Time and you have a topic in mind. Greatest of All Time certainly isn't dead. No. Yeah, it's just you can't do it every week because eventually we're going to run out of things right. that are the greatest of all time. It'll just be every – we'll have to come up with excuses to do every different year. Right. right. So, you know, and we haven't done a top ten list in a long time. Maybe we'll do that again at some point. Uh, nothing is out of the question 
it's like a Pearl Jam set list. Like anything in our catalog could come out. Yeah, have we done anything that we would just definitely bury, like not I don't, bring back? We tried a movie, a sports movie thing once, and we did it, and we didn't even air it. You remember that? Yeah. So I guess that would probably never happen. Yeah, I don't even remember what we it talked was, about. Major League was the movie, I remember. Okay. And like we both watched it that week, and then... We were just gonna talk Chat about, it, about it, and yeah. we did, and it was just stupid. Right? We just didn't. We just didn't even air it. We That's just right. Deleted it. So <laughs> that that didn't work, I guess. But uh, all right. So three opinions that we have that most people don't. And uh, Don, I'll let you do the honor of uh, the very first ever opinion. Oh, how exciting! Uh, my first two I came up with were both related to the Bills. So with the draft, I'm gonna go Bills heavy here. Maybe these opinions aren't had. These are definitely the would be unpopular opinions in this area based on what I know. I'm not sure what the national opinion of the Bills is and all this, but my first thing, I, I guess I'll go with the most maybe nationally controversial one. I think the Bills, if you subtracted quarterback, have a top 10 roster as a whole. I think I'd rather have the Bills roster than more than a majority of the other teams in the NFL. I just I think they're that close they just don't have a quarterback i was thinking about it with the saints would you rather have the saints roster than the bills i mean if you could plug drew Brees into the bills roster mm, yeah i'd still probably rather have the Saints because of jimmy graham maybe jimmy graham because um, the bills defense kenny vaccaro definitely better right bills defense is probably slightly better yeah but i mean it's close and the saints are a perennial playoff team and the Bills are nowhere. So, I mean, it just shows the importance of quarterback. Like, I, I think they're a really, really good roster. All right. I'm going to start out with the sports one as well. The NHL is better than the NBA. <laughs> yeah. That is maybe not going to come off as a shock to anyone who listens to the show that this might no, be right. this opinion. But the NBA is dreadful. I mean, I do my best, especially this time of year. And they have a great game going, right? I mean, it's a great game. Both teams, they're making shots. They're playing hard. And that last minute and 45 seconds yeah. takes three weeks. There's too many timeouts and too many reviews and just everything about it. It's just a dreadful league. The NBA is nowhere near as good as the NHL. But unfortunately, ratings and Sports Center and everything would say that that's not the popular opinion. But it's certainly mine, the NHL. Way better than the NBA. I think what NBA has going for it, one thing is it's, for the most part, five guys. So it's it's a star-driven league. The NHL has its stars, but in a 60-minute game, if Crosby's out there 25 minutes, he played a ton of hockey that night. Uh, and they have helmets on. You can't see him. There's a lot of that type of thing. Um, but, yeah, your point about the last two minutes, I think non-basketball fans and non-baseball fans would have the same issue with those two sports like baseball is just too slow too much adjusting and all that type of thing anyway my number two opinion about the bills is based on kind of what i said about the first opinion i would draft a quarterback in this draft if i were the bills i know that would look terrible uh i think it would take a lot of balls because it's not like it was a totally different draft class unless doug whaley came out and said or a totally different team drafting Unless Doug Whaley came out and threw Buddy Nix under the bus and said, yeah, EJ was his pick, not my pick, uh, then I think it would take a lot of balls to admit that. If we Manziel think is there at nine, you think the Bills should pick him? If they think he's better, I think they should. I don't think the reason they shouldn't pick him is because it would look bad. 
Because, like I said, I think this is a team that's really close. I think I would absolutely rather have the Bills roster than the Patriots roster, and the Patriots are going to win the division for the millionth year in a row uh, because they have a better quarterback. I've heard it said, and I think I said it last week, if you need to draft an offensive lineman or you need to draft a wide receiver to make E.J. Manuel better, then maybe E.J. Manuel is not good enough. I'm not necessarily ready to give up on him after 10 games that he played limping through last year, but if the Bills think there's a better guy out there, take it. I would be all, I'd be excited that my, my GM had the balls to do something like that. All right, this next one is one I, I would love to be wrong about, and I'm going to try one more week, but the show Louie is not funny. <laughs> I love Louie. There is absolutely nothing funny about that show. I listen to Howard Stern and Opie and Anthony at least part of Opie and Anthony every day and all of Howard Stern every day, and Louie was on both shows this week promoting the first two episodes. Days reason I'm two at a time. Yeah, the, I guess they're going seven weeks in a row, two episodes uh, a night. So I taped the first two. And um, the first one started off with a really funny bit about how um, he's getting woken up by the garbage men outside. Okay. But it's, like, so loud they end up, like, in his room. And they're, like, you know, making all kinds of noise, like, right in his room. And it was funny. And then it went on for 55 more minutes, and I never laughed again. So have you watched the series before? I don't understand the show at all. Have you watched it before? No. Oh, okay. Um. I think it's the best show on TV right now, and it's not always hilarious. It's weird the way it'll do that. You'll watch an entire episode. Like, they did an episode to end, this is what, the fourth season? They did an episode, I think, to end season two. Or it was the end of the first season. Either way, it's the one where he goes overseas, and he has, like, this duck in his bag that, uh, it's one of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. And it, it's not overly funny. It, yeah. I, it, I think it's it's one of those shows that's brilliant, and I think it, it comes off as almost like kind of like artsy fartsy to say that sometimes. Cause it's not, it's a show about a comedian. That's not always laugh out loud. Hilarious. I'm willing to change my mind on that one, which I think I kind of set off to start, but I think I've probably seen five or six episodes now. Yeah. And I, I would have a hard I time. Don't get it. I would have a hard time coming up with, if you said, what's the funniest episode of Louie, I think I would have a tough time coming up with that, but I, I think the show itself is, is brilliant. And as a second opinion related to this, his show on HBO was hilarious. Lucky Louie? Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that HBO is way too quick on axing that. that and I, his wife comes back on Louie. And that's really, really funny. But this isn't. So I don't know. <laughs> um, My last opinion will be unpopular here and will probably not make a ripple anywhere else. But I don't hate the Patriots. Uh Bills fans hate the Patriots. They hate Tom Brady. Uh, I think the Patriots are a little overrated in that whatever they do in the draft is going to be brilliant, regardless of the fact that they don't particularly draft that well. Nobody loves trading back. Right, and nobody nobody wants to point that out, that the roster around Brady is just not very good. And that's why I think Brady is the best quarterback of all time because they don't even try to address the the team around him it seems like and he just wins but uh yeah i don't i don't hate them i don't consider them a rival you you have to win some games against your rival uh i know the bills kind of dominated the dolphins and they were our rival back then but i don't know people here hate 
the Patriots, and I'm guessing in Boston, the Bills aren't even on their register because what is it, eighteen and two or something like that? Like it's it's terrible. I don't hate them. I I hate them just because they're good. Yeah, I like that one. All right, and then uh, just to prove I'm completely a lunatic to everyone who is sitting there trying to figure out why I don't like what everyone says is the funniest show on TV. <laughs> uh, I mentioned this on Twitter, and I'm going to say it again. Cindy Lauper is way better than Madonna. Yeah. Uh, Madonna is so overrated. Um, and I only compare them because they're so similar. They're Italians from New York who had weird hair and were only sexy in the 80s, but probably wouldn't have been considered sexy if they were around now. They probably wouldn't have been considered sexy if they were walking around in the street. Like they were, they got definitely bumped up a bit because they were famous, right? And uh, I just think Cindy Lauper is way better than Madonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna argue at all about that one. So, I'm going with Cindy Lauper being better than Madonna, the NHL being better than the NBA, and Louis just not being as funny as everyone thinks it is. I'm gonna say the Bills should draft a QB if they think there's a better one out there. Their roster is a top ten roster minus quarterback, and I don't hate the Patriots. I have no idea if that was good or not. I don't know either. <laughs> Let us Hopefully know. we'll get a bunch of hate yeah. mail because that, <clears throat> that's generally the, the thing. If people point out how wrong we are about everything, that means it, it registered at least. So we should tell people how to hate mail us. The sportscasters at gmail.com or at sports underscore casters on Twitter. And we'll be right back with Sean McIndoe. Our next guest is based in Ontario, Ottawa, Ontario, and is the popular hockey humorist at DownGoesBrown.com. He also writes for Grantland and the National Post. Uh, in September, he released his uh, first book, Down Goes Brown, kind of a best-of compilation of his columns. Uh, he's a diehard Toronto Maple Leafs fan, and he's making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Sean McIndoe. How's it going, Sean? It's going pretty good. Did I get that right? McIndoe? Is that how we say that? Yeah, you're you're pretty close. Yeah, McIndoe, yeah. McIndoe, okay, yeah. Well, I'll just say it's a Western New York thing. See, we would always say McIndoe in Western New York, and they would say, no, it's McIndoe, and we'd say, that's what I said. <laughs> that uh, works. Yeah, so. Uh, hi, uh, thanks for, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, playoffs, best you can remember in how long so far this year? Man, it's it's been a while. The first round for sure was uh, it was right up there in, in the best ever. I mean, the gold standard for me is uh, is still going back to the '93 playoffs, and and obviously that's that's going back a ways. Uh, so I, I I don't know. I haven't sat down and done a side by side, try to figure out if uh, if this year matches up. But the the fact that we're even talking about it uh, in, the, in the same breath is a is a pretty good sign. It would it. I mean, it just felt like every every series in the first round had something going for it, something going on, some story or uh, a big play, big game, um, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, the second round uh, has a lot to live up to. I don't know if it really has quite yet, but uh, we we still got a little ways to go. Yeah, the '93 playoffs is a big one for me, just because it was the first time I was at a really significant moment in Sabres history, being the Mayday game. My dad and I went. Uh, and had standing room tickets for Game Four of uh, Boston and Buffalo, and it was the first time the Sabres went to the second round in forever. And uh, Jenner had the famous call on the Brad May goal where he walked uh, Ray Bork and 
scored on Andy Moog. So that that's a playoffs. And, and they were right with the, the Canadians, too, who, you know, kind of started their unbelievable run of overtime wins against the Sabres in that series. So I think every game was 4-3. to three. Yeah, some, yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, that was, uh, uh, you know, that was a great run by the Sabres back then. Uh, they they were coming off, it, it had been so long for them, and they yeah, made the, the big deal for, for Grant Fear, and then he gets hurt, and uh, they're underdogs against the Bruins. And normally in the first round when there's a sweep, you go, okay, well, that's a bad series. Nobody will remember that, but that's actually, just because of the circumstances, ended up being one of the most memorable uh, moments from, from that whole round. And then they got swept the next round, and it was a great series too. You know, like I said, every 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 game I think was was one goal, and unfortunately for the Sabres, Mongilney broke his leg too. So I guess it wouldn't have mattered regardless because they weren't gonna go anywhere with without Mongilney anyway. But um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great great start so far, and we'll get into the second round. But looking back on the first round, uh, there's there's plenty to look at. I mean, Columbus uh, kind of showed that that can be a great hockey market, which is one thing I'll take from that uh, series. The Kings had the big comeback, uh, the, the down 3 nothing. several different things. What do you think uh, in a couple of years from now when you look back on that round is going to stick out the most for you? I mean, I think the one that we'll remember most is going to be that L.A.-San Jose series. Yeah. Just the, uh, the, you know, the fact that it's it's still uh, so rare to see a team, uh, not just in hockey but in any sport, come back from down 3 nothing and uh, – uh, to have it happen to the Sharks, I, I mean, I, I, I've written about this, and I still, I still think the Sharks are in a good place. And and if I'm a Sharks fan, I don't want to see them overreact to this. I don't think they need to blow it up. I don't think they need to start firing people. Uh, I, I think you could make a real strong case to to just bring back the the same core next year and, and take another run at it because they spent most of the year looking like a surefire Cup contender. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, everyone's saying, well, what's wrong with San Jose? What's the to me, the the thing that is most wrong with San Jose is that they play in a very tough division, uh, and they wound up sticking themselves with a very very tough first round matchup. If they had been able to catch Anaheim uh, and uh, get that number one seed, get away from that Kings matchup, then uh, we're we're probably having a very different conversation. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's quite possible that the Kings and the Sharks are two of the very best five teams in the NHL right now, and they happen to play in the first round, and one team had to lose and. Um, I don't think there's any shame in being that team, but obviously the way it happened is, is something that people are going to be looking back at for a long time. The Penguins are a really interesting team for me because I think if you, if Marc-Andre Fleury doesn't kind of lose his mind for a minute and a half in playing time there, they win that series probably in five games, and it's maybe a different conversation. But... I would have left Marc-Andre Fleury for dead right there, and I would have said, you know what, this is exactly what they didn't want. It's become a Marc-Andre Fleury series, but I wonder if maybe we've seen the opposite happen in that the team kind of rallied around him a little bit, and he's played his best hockey since then. Do you think that uh, that the Penguins could be a team that is we're going to see get better as the playoffs go on? or I mean, are they so f- fragile that, you know, the Rangers could score five goals tonight and they'll be out in a few days and we'll still be talking about them the way we did when the playoffs ended last year. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite possible. that The Penguins' weaknesses that they had going in the playoffs are, are still weaknesses today. I mean, they're a very top-heavy team. Depth-wise, they're, uh, they're, they're probably not where you'd like to be uh, if you're a top contender. Uh, so they rely a lot on, on the top lines. And even right now, I mean, with, with obviously we all know uh, the Sidney Crosby's slump over the first round and a half uh, 
you know, they haven't been getting a ton of production out of him. Uh, but you're right. I mean, Fleury's the guy that everyone looks at. And I, and I, you know, I wrote about this with Joe Thornton. I think we get a little bit carried away on, on putting labels on guys when it comes to the playoffs. Guys who have had regular season success, and then we turn around and say, well, yeah, he's a regular season guy, but he's not a guy who can get it done in the playoffs. Uh, Fleury's always been an interesting case because I, I can't remember in my lifetime anyone other than Marc Andre Fleury uh, as far as goaltenders who had Stanley Cup rings and yet still had that reputation as being guys that you couldn't count on in the playoffs. Usually once you get that ring as a goalie, you're set. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the Cam Ward syndrome. You, you, you will be considered an elite goaltender forever and ever, no matter what your numbers look like. But with Fleury, the, the struggles that he's had, and, and you know, they, they, there's, there's, no, there's no masking. I mean, he, he really did struggle for a few years there in the, in the postseason. Uh, that that just got the spotlight on him, and I do. I think we overuse the labels, but at the same time, I think that uh, goalies are are a funny breed, and uh, you know, they, they, you can get into their heads and uh, get them get them doubting themselves and get the teammates doubting them a little bit. And it looked like that. Uh, that's where we're going again with Flurry this year. Obviously, he's he's been on the hot streak since the back-to-back shutouts uh, has has kind of quieted all that and made us all find some other narrative to latch onto. But uh, you're right. I mean, if the Rangers. If the Rangers come out and score five tonight, you know I don't think it matters how many how many they score. It's uh, in terms of how people view Mark Andre Fleury at this point. I don't think it's how many. It's it's just how they go oh, in. Right. Uh, you know they, they the Penguins could win tonight five to one, and if that one goal uh, is a hundred and twenty footer that he lets skip through his legs, then then maybe that opens up that uh, that whole storyline all over again. But uh, you know the, the the Penguins would look good. I, I picked the Rangers to beat them. I think a lot of people did. Yeah. Uh, they've looked good so far, and and obviously the Rangers look like uh, look like an exhausted team right now, and uh, you know that's that's too bad for them, but uh, that's 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 not Pittsburgh's fault. Yeah, Billy Joel doing the Rangers no favors. Uh, I, I wonder. You mentioned it with LA and San Jose, and sometimes uh, these playoff runs can be so much about matchups. Uh, if Pittsburgh gets by the Rangers, and it's Montreal waiting there, I feel like they have a lot. But a much better chance of being in the cup than if they get there and Boston's waiting. Boston just doesn't seem like a team that they will match up very well against. Is that something you would, you would like the the teams that are left in the East? Can you almost say, well, I can see New York getting there if it's this team. It's almost definitely going to be Boston if it's that. You know, it, it seems like the East is real. We can almost focus in on that now at this point. Yeah, I mean it. It is tricky because I've been saying all along that I thought I thought the East was Boston's conference to lose. I, I really felt like they were well positioned to, uh, to to not just go through, but to go through relatively easily, at least compared to the the path that whoever comes out of the West is going to have to go through. And uh, and I still think that even even with them down two one, I, I I still feel like they they've they've got a really good chance to win that series. But uh, you know, it's it's tough to look ahead because by the time you get to the conference finals, there really are no easy matchups. Even if you're running into a a low seed at that point, you're going to be running into a team that's on a hot streak, that's overachieving, that's starting to get that team of destiny vibe to it. And uh, you know, Montreal will be there. Montreal can knock off Boston. They're going to be going into into the conference finals, convinced that they can beat absolutely anybody. Um, but uh, I, I would agree with you that that's a better matchup for Pittsburgh than Boston would be. We saw it last year. They uh, in, in the playoffs, uh, they, they just don't match up well with the Bruins. And if the Bruins are are uh, are playing the way that they can, and and they really they, they haven't reached that level in this series yet. But if if they can get it turned around, get through to the conference finals, and get the you know get their best game out there on the ice, then I, I'm I'm not convinced Pittsburgh can match it.
Yeah. I, I think going in, I, I, I like you, kind of thought that Boston I, – I don't think I looked at a team and said, that's a team that can beat Boston four times. It's just so solid. It'd be such a tough out. And I don't know that I specifically had a team picked out for that in the West. And now I – don't really know what team in the West could beat the Kings four out of seven, and I don't know what team could beat the Blackhawks four out of seven. Uh, it just kind of feels like those are the two teams out there, and I don't know how to handicap that. It, I, are you you kind of focusing in on those two teams? Or you yeah, still think I that, mean, it certainly seems like we're we're headed in that yeah. direction. And, and again, it's it it is early, and uh, it is Minnesota it, you know, got a big the last, last round. Night. Certainly yeah. taught us that just because the team's down a couple of games early doesn't mean that you. That you write them off, but uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I wrote a post yesterday where I said that I, I thought the Blackhawks series with the Wild was basically already done, and I didn't see any way that, that Minnesota could come back. And I've, uh, as you can imagine, I've heard from many, many Minnesota Wild fans today. Uh, didn't hear from any of them yesterday during the day, but uh, <laughs> after about uh, midnight last night, uh, right. I guess something must have happened last night that, that changed a lot of minds because I've been hearing from plenty of them, and, and that's fine. That's, uh, um, you, you know, that's. That's how it goes, and, uh, and and I'll take that from them for uh, for at least a couple of days until Game Four. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's all signs are pointing to Chicago LA rematch from last year, and uh, um, boy, that that'd be a heck of a series. And uh, again, I you know I feel like I made this point in the first round uh, too, but uh, you, you just wonder when you look at at those two teams if they if they do make it through and they go to the conference finals, and it's the kind of series we think it's going to be. What are they possibly going to have left when they, by the time they they get to the final? Because both of those teams had real, real tough first round matchups, long series, right? Uh, and then uh, you know the, the second round, we'll, we'll see. I'm not, I'm not counting Anaheim out. I'm, uh, I, I will pretend that I'm not counting Minnesota out. But uh, yeah, no, I, I certainly think we're going to see that uh, that rematch from last year. One of the best things about the playoffs, and it happens every year, is the guys who go from. They just blossom in, in in front of us. And I feel like this year, maybe more than any year I can remember recently, it just seems like there's so many guys who have really – I mean, P.K. Subban, I mean, he's not an unknown, but, I mean, he's turning into an absolute superstar. I mean, there's a couple uh, Blue Jackets guys, Johansson, who uh, jumped out to me. Obviously, Nathan McKinnon had an unbelievable first round. Who are some guys you, you've been looking at this spring and, and, and really been impressed in how they've emerged and – and kind of increased uh, the level of their games. Well, I mean, the, the guy you mentioned, the PK Subban, is a guy. I mean, I've been I've been riding that bandwagon for uh, for a couple of years now, and and taking every opportunity to to sort of pump his tires a little bit because uh, you know as as you know he he's a guy that uh, when he does get attention around the league, a lot of times it's not the positive kind, and and he really does seem to, to rub a lot of people the wrong way, uh, and uh, and some of that's fair and some of it's not, but uh, I'll tell you. You will have a very hard time finding any Montreal Canadiens fans who who would describe what he's doing right now as any kind of breakout uh, or any kind of surprise performance. This is what this is the player that he has been for a few years now, uh, and uh, I mean you, you take the good with the bad with him in the sense that uh, you know is is he still is he the defensive player you would like him to be yet? No, probably not. I mean he's no one's going to confuse him with Zdeno Chara, but. Uh, he is he is just an electrifying player offensively, better defensively than people think, and uh, you know this uh, this if this is the series that finally gets him on the radar of people outside of that Montreal Eastern Canada area uh, who have already seen him often, uh, then that's great because this is a guy he deserves to be a superstar. He deserves to be one of the the faces of the league, uh, and uh, you feel like. Uh, uh, there, 
there, there's not a lot of guys who can do that playing out of Canada. Uh, but I think he's one of them, and uh, you know, hopefully the league wakes up and, and uh, starts making that happen. Yeah, there's not a lot of guys who can win a Norris Trophy one year and then like the next year have people saying, "Wow, this guy is like emerging as a superstar." You know, as yeah, I mean, you're right. It, I mean, it it sounds strange, but he yeah. was. I mean, he was kind of in the same boat as Eric Carlson, where he won the Norris, but you know, everybody was sort of like, "Well, yeah, okay, maybe." Maybe you give it to him for the one year, but that, that it was a, a one-year wonder thing. Not in the sense that he was going to go back and, and suddenly be a second or third pairing guy, but just, uh, you know, is this really a guy who belongs in that Chara-Keith Weber discussion? And, uh, uh, you know, the, obviously the Montreal Canadiens felt that way, too, because they gave him the, the, the short little contract a couple of years ago. And, uh, uh, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody loves their job right now any more than uh, P.K. Subban's agent because uh, that, that is going to be a real fun negotiation for them uh, this summer, and, and PK is, uh, is, is going to get paid. You know, and one more guy I want to talk about, the Canadians. And Carey Price, I, I have made the argument on this show before that there is no higher pressure position in sports than playing goaltender for the Montreal Canadiens. And this is a guy who's not that old and seems to have been doing it forever already. And just the maturity that he shows and just the way he plays. I mean, I, I just admire Carey Price as a hockey player for being able to go out there every night in that building in front of the pressure and those fans, and he's been great so far. And if the Canadians somehow win 16 games, I think it's going to be really hard to decide uh, who gets that con Smythe between uh, Carey Price or P.K. Subban because I think uh, each one is just as important as the other, and I just wanted to see, get some thoughts on uh, Carey Price in the playoffs he's had and kind of the maturity he's shown. Yeah, I mean he he's been real good. He he's he's been he's been a great player for a couple of years now. And I think I wrote uh, in the lead up to the playoffs uh, something about him to the effect that it's it, it shouldn't be possible for uh, an all star goaltender in a market like Montreal uh, coming off a gold medal win to still be considered underrated. But he but he might be there. Right? You know, for whatever reason, when it comes to goaltenders. Uh, especially in recent years, we seem to love the the guys that, who have who have kind of come out of nowhere or really raised their games unexpectedly. The the Ben Bishops, the Bobrovskys, the the, the Barlamovs, those sorts of guys. Uh, and it's easy to forget that you got a guy like Carey Price who's been very very good uh, consistently for years now. And now, now the knock on him has always been in the playoffs and and being able to get uh, the Canadians out of that first round, which he hadn't hadn't done since his first year in the league. Uh, but, you know, as as we know, the goaltender can only do so much. I mean, yeah, a guy can steal a series, but he needs his teammates to. And if his teammates aren't scoring, then uh, your goaltending isn't really going to matter. And, uh, you know, they, they they need Carey Price to have his A-plus game if they're going to have any chance of beating the Bruins. I mean, Tugaraska, I think, is the other guy that would be in that conversation as the best goaltender in the league. Uh, but I'm not sure that Tugaraska has to be perfect for the Bruins to win this series. Carey Price probably does, and uh, you know, to his credit, with the exception of the, the one period in Game 2, he's, uh, he's basically been there. Yeah, you mentioned about how pumped P.K. Subban's agent must be. There's probably some pretty disappointed ones, and i got to imagine Ryan Miller's is at the top of that list. Any other guys you've seen so far this playoffs who maybe are impending free agents or guys who are looking to get a bump that just haven't quite produced at the level that maybe the team that acquired them or owned them kind of hoped? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Miller's the one guy that that, that you got to really question where where that's going to go. Whether St. Louis even wants him, uh, you know, Jonas Hillier is another guy that, uh, you know, not even playing at uh, you know at this point, not even being the surefire right. starter. That's 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 going to hurt him. Uh, you know, you look around. There, there's not a lot of free free agents out there. Thomas Vanek is a guy that you you know he's he's kind of been up and down. Uh, he's uh, you know he had the big goal the other night and. Uh, uh, he's he's largely looked good with the Canadians, but then you hear comments from coaches about effort level and and that kind of thing, and you wonder if uh, uh, you know how many dollars those sorts of sound bites might uh, might cost him down the road. But uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, we always talk about guys you know maybe costing themselves money, but uh, the free agency is so thin in the NHL that uh, these guys always end up getting the big bucks anyways, because some GM out there will talk himself into absolutely needing uh, some some first line talent. Uh, to add to his team, and and he'll look around, and there's there's just not much out there, and uh, you know the the Thomas Vanek's of the world are are going to get paid, whether it's in Minnesota or elsewhere. He'll uh, uh, he'll find somebody willing to to write him a check. And that effort stuff has followed Thomas Vanek around for his whole career, and sometimes I think that it's a label he just can't shake, regardless of what he does. I, I've seen Thomas Vanek play a, a lot of hockey games, and. There's not a lot of times where I didn't think he was working really hard. I don't know. I, I've always kind of thought it's a little bit of an unfair label for him, but I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you, you never know. I mean, you, yeah. if, if you're not there in the room, you, you, you don't necessarily see somebody's habits. You can't read that much. And even the way that guys practice, you, you don't necessarily know what you're dealing with. But you're right. Once somebody gets that label, it, uh, it tends to be really hard to shake it, and especially for the European guys. I mean, there's still some of that old-school thinking that uh, – uh, you know, when when you got a guy with the European name and and, uh, and a bit of an accent, then uh, you know suddenly maybe we're a little faster to to slap that label on them than uh, than we would be for a North American guy. But uh, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I'll, I'll take a lazy guy who can score 35 or 40 goals on my team any day, and uh, uh, you know I'll, I'll let the fourth liners work hard. Well, you can find Sean's work on Grantland, like we said, and you can find him on Twitter at Down Goes Brown. Last thing, leave me on this: what uh. What are the main? What's the main thing or two that you are going to want to watch the closest play out here as the playoffs go forward? What, what is what is the number one storyline that you're interested in the most following as the playoffs develop? Uh, well, boy, I mean, but personally speaking, I got to watch that Wild series because if they ever do come back and win that series, you're I'm, in a uh, lot of trouble. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in big time trouble. I might have to drop out of the uh, off the uh, the online grid there. But uh, uh, no, I mean, beyond that, honestly, the the the, the series I'm watching closest right now is the one closest home. It's that Boston Montreal series. I, I Boston has been my cup pick. Uh, pretty much from the beginning, and uh, you know they, they, they are on the ropes a little bit right now. Uh, you know, I don't think Game Four is a must-win for them. I think they could still come back from three-one with with two of those games at home. Um, but uh, they're getting into that danger zone now, and uh, you know, I, I can also tell you that. Uh, um, you know, as a guy who's only a couple hours outside of Montreal, if they keep marching, that city's really going to be something else. It's going to be a good time, and uh, you know, hopefully, I'll get a chance to uh, get over there and 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 be a part of it and, and just drink it in a little bit. Because as a as a Leaf fan, that's probably the closest I'm going to get anytime soon. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that well, uh, as a Sabres fan, <laughs> you know, I. Uh... Uh, yeah, I will be yeah. living vicariously through several teams for several years, so uh, I know exactly. I know the feeling. Uh, thanks for doing this, Sean. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks, Bob.
All right, I want to thank Down Goes Brown. I want to thank Jonah Carey. And want to thank Robert Klemko for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this week's podcast, last week's podcast, and all the podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. One last thing for me, just a really quick thing I was thinking about. So I'm getting married this summer. I think we've mentioned that on the podcast before. And uh, Miss Caster and I started dating in 1999. Uh, pretty recently, one of Miss Caster's cousins, a uh, younger cousin, knocked up a girl. So I think he's like maybe <laughs> around 22 and she's like 18. And it made me think about if I would have knocked her up. Like back in nineteen ninety nine. Nineteen ninety nine. Holy cow! That kid would be like eighteen now. Yeah, well, fifteen, I think. Oh yeah, is what it actually math be. There, right? Yeah. Right, and it would have sucked in nineteen ninety nine, but like the thought of right now, like being three years away from the kid technically being done, is like an amazing <laughs> thought. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure it would have been shitty in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, but like. In reality, Miss Castor's parents would have taken care of it anyway. You know, like, <laughs> they would have filled in the gaps. Like oh, it wouldn't boy. have been that big of a catastrophe. This could have been in the unpopular opinion segment. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, just the idea of like, you know, some like high schooler running around here right now. Yeah. You know, you've got to health insure them. I think until like twenty six now, though. Something crazy like that. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be. It's never over. Right? Right, you right. know what I mean? I'm, I was kind of kidding about the over no, part, I but like, it, I, I'd assume it gets easier. Less easier. I mean, they they don't want to be around you as much, certainly by the time they're sure. You know, imagine so, you worry more. Oh, I'm sure you worry way but more. You have. Less I've always said my biggest fear about having a kid is you, you instantly sign up to worry for the rest of your life. Yeah, you yeah. know, the day you have the kid, you're worrying forever. I don't. I don't worry too much right now. Having a kid that's only two. Uh, I mean. You worry about dumb stuff like, oh, I haven't heard her in her crib. I better sneak into the room to make right. sure she's alive. Like, just totally scary, uncontrollable stuff. I don't have to worry until she's, she's probably like, not going to get pregnant or anything. No, this week. God, yeah. I hope not. Yeah, so she, she doesn't have even to worry have about, a boyfriend. Yet. Right, those things, and she's not going to fail English or anything. Right, I mean, right. So yeah, yeah I'll, I'll get caught shoplifting. <laughs> I will. Uh, I think it'll be easier. But, but I yeah, want to ask you, like, would you sign up for a fifteen-year-old right now instead of? Where you are in parenting, I I think assuming you would have done this stuff, you would have just done it earlier because you 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 also could have gotten Michelle pregnant sure. in nineteen ninety nine. Sure, right? Yeah, no. I the only thing I don't like is I guess every year you don't have a kid, you're kind of robbing them of a year that I'll be alive at the back end. Like if I had her, mm. if I had her ten years earlier. She would know me ten years longer, but right. maybe I'll be crappy when I'm eighty anyway. Like maybe I'll right. maybe you'll be a burden. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> they want you to die. As far as Christ, Dad, will you go already? As far as uh, I think, where I was in my life, I'm a much better father, and my wife is a much better mother right now. Than oh yeah, we would have been, been shitty. Then. Oh yeah, yeah, we would have been terrible. Would have been a nightmare. Like right. you watch those kids on sixteen and pregnant, and you're or what is it, teen mom. Right, and you're like holy, cow. but we would have been much better than them because like, well, we yes. come from good family support. And, yeah, and they're crazy people. You know, she's got a little bit of money on her side of the family. It would have all worked <laughs> out, probably. Yeah, you know what I mean. And you know, it'd be kind of nice. It, like, I, it would be cool to be this young with a kid that like 
you can relate to. Right. Yes. And like, I'm going to go to the doctor tomorrow to get my right knee checked out because I'm just old. I yeah. think like I didn't do anything to it. It just hurts like hell all of a sudden. So, and I, you're a pussy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it could, <laughs> I'm blaming it on 20 years of soccer, but it could just be that I, I'm a giant pussy. All right. Yeah. That's all I have. All right. My last thing, uh, speaking of how I'm a giant pussy, uh, I'd bring up, kind of nerdy crap now and then and i thought i maybe you've even talked about this but i'm still totally hooked if i had uh there's a game online called hearthstone it's essentially <laughs> a ripoff of magic the gathering but it takes place like in the world of warcraft universe which i know nothing about by the way but if you're a fan of free games online it's a card game you can play against your friends you kind of build a collection you build a deck and you play it if you've ever played anything like magic or any sort of uh star wars card games anything like that it's sweet it's super easy to learn it's like magic but really dumbed down and uh i am totally totally hooked on it and it's been out of beta now for a couple months so unlike our segment unlike our segment right our segment is still in beta uh hopefully it's our segment is as successful as hearthstone but yeah if you got any nerd and you go check it out (laughs) 